the auditorium was filled with people who had all come to hear the eloquent, charismatic preacher. He preached with great enthusiasm, and he said, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter who you've done it with, I want you to know. In the auditorium, the congregation all leaned in to hear those next hopeful words. I want you to know that God is not angry with you. Such hopeful words, such inspiring words, such comforting words, but were they true words? Does God never get angry with us? There was a, a time in the, maybe the church's history where it was assumed that's all that God does. He's always angry with us. But now we need to ask the question, does God never get angry with us? Had that preacher said this, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter who you've done it with, I want you to know that God loves you. Now that would have been inspiring, comforting, hopeful, and most importantly, it would have been true. Does God ever get angry? It's uh, appealing to us to, to have a God who never gets angry. But if we begin to flesh that out, it maybe becomes a little less appealing. A God who never gets angry is a God who, who genuinely doesn't care. A God who is not invested. He's a God who never gets angry, but he's also a God who never rejoices in his people. He doesn't experience sorrow. He doesn't experience joy. What his people do, he's unaffected. Doesn't matter. One of the most definitive things said about God in the scripture is that God is love. And the, the area where we struggle is we make this mistake assuming that if God is angry, he must not be loving. And if God is loving, he must never become angry. We so see those things as opposites because sometimes that's our experience. But God loves perfectly and he gets angry perfectly. For him, those are not intention. So this morning, I'm starting with that because we are coming to a, a passage as we work our way through Mark that uh, we're going to see Jesus get angry. In fact, we're going to see Jesus have some behavior that is, is violent. And, and it's kind of hard to wrestle with. We, we always hear about Jesus and and Jesus loves me, this I know. And, and now seeing Jesus kind of angry is, is a little bit shocking to us. A hundred years ago, there was a, a British philosopher named Bertrand Russell. And he once gave a speech titled, Why I'm Not a Christian. And one of the, the points of his speech was the passage that we're going to look at today. He cited this as one of the reasons why I'm not a Christian. Join me as we pray for the reading of God's word. Father God, your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so much greater are your ways and your thoughts than ours. And so we pray that you would reveal us today. Reveal yourself to us. Fill us with your truth. 
May the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, open to Mark chapter 11, beginning at verse 12. And uh, just for a a real quick refresher, uh, Jesus and the disciples have been on this long trek to Jerusalem. He's told his disciples, when we get to Jerusalem, I'm going to die. I'm going to be killed. And now they have finally arrived. They march into Jerusalem to great acclamation, shouts of Hosanna. They return to Bethany where they spend the night. And now we're picking up the story the next morning as they're returning back to Jerusalem. Verse 12. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seen in the distance a fig tree in leaf. He went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, and his disciples heard him say it. So I I don't mean to be irreverent, but it seems like Jesus is having a little bit of a temper tantrum. He sees a a fig tree in in full leaf. He's hungry. He goes over to look for fruit, and he finds no fruit. Why does he find no fruit? It's not the season for figs. But he's angry, and so he curses the tree. You cursed tree. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. This, Bertland Russell said a hundred years ago, is why I'm not a Christian. Simply stated, Jesus doesn't seem like that great of a guy. Seems so very human, so, so irritable, so unreasonable, so prone to unwarranted outbursts. What did this poor fig tree do to deserve such harsh judgment? Well, that's a great question, and it was one that I was struggling with this, with this week, and so I turned to someone a lot smarter than me. Uh, I found a sermon by the late R.C. Sproul, who preached on this passage, and he was able to shed some light. This is what R.C. said. He said, it's true that most fig trees produce fruit late in the summer and early in the fall, but not all fig trees. There are some species of fig trees that produce fruit earlier. The best indicator of whether or not there is fruit is not the season, but it's whether the foliage is in full bloom. Yes, it was early, but this fig tree was in full leaf. It had the appearance of being a tree that should have fruit on it. But when Jesus went over and inspected it, There was no fruit, and so he cursed it. That's a great explanation. But even if R.C. is right, and I believe he is, even if he's right, don't Jesus' actions still seem a little petty? A little vindictive? Is this a case of Jesus being what we call hangry? He's hungry and, and becomes angry and irritable? If this was an isolated event, if it was only about the fig tree, we might come to that conclusion. But as we keep reading the narrative, it shifts to another story, the cleansing of the temple, 
And then it comes back to the fig tree. The story of the fig tree is actually a bookend to something that's going on in the middle, which makes me believe this is not about the fig tree. This is an object lesson. This is what we might call a children's sermon. Jesus is using the fig tree to communicate to his disciples something about something else, about what they're going to experience in just the, the next few hours. So the question is, if this is an object lesson, if the fig tree is an object lesson, what's the lesson? Sometimes it's, it's obvious, hopefully the sticker thing, you know, fairly obvious. Sometimes it's a little more difficult. The lesson I believe in this, in this story with the fig tree is about God's anger towards the sin of hypocrisy. Towards the sin of hypocrisy. Jesus had been dealing with religious leaders for months who had been trying to trap him, trying to discredit him, trying to, to humiliate him. And remember some of the things he would say to them? He'd call them whitewashed tombs. Whitewash. You make it look good on the outside, but upon closer inspection, you're a tomb. You're a grave. It's dead inside. He said, you clean the outside of the cup so it has the appearance of looking so wonderful. But upon closer inspection, the inside of the cup is filthy said, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. Hypocrisy. The fig tree had the appearance of fruit, but upon closer inspection, it was all leaf, no fruit. As you know, the most frequently lobbed grenade at us, at the church, is the sin of hypocrisy. More than anything else is what, what we hear. The church is full of hypocrites. That's why I don't want to have anything to do with them. They're all hypocrites. The accusation is half true. What the church is full of is sinners. The church is full of sinners. R.C. Sproul in that sermon made, made this statement. He said, the church is the only organization that requires of its members that they be sinners. We are the only organization that requires of our members that they be sinners. If you are not a sinner, you have no need of a Savior. What binds us together is we have put our hope in Jesus Christ, the Savior of our souls, the one who forgives our sins. We are full of sinners. Now, hypocrisy is one form of sin. And there is a temptation for us to fall into hypocrisy. What is hypocrisy? Hypocrisy occurs when we pretend to be more righteous than we are. When we become more concerned about the appearance of things than the, the reality of things. As long as I look the part, what is really true doesn't matter. Hypocrisy is working really hard to have the green leaves, but being unconcerned about whether or not there's any fruit. So Jesus has been contending with these religious leaders for months. Now he's in Jerusalem. Now he's on their home turf. They have home field advantage. It's Passover. 
thousands, hundreds of thousands of people are coming to Jerusalem, all coming to the temple. This is where the religious leaders are in charge. They run the show. So after this episode of cursing the fig tree, Jesus enters Jerusalem with his disciples, and they go straight to the temple. And that's where we continue. Mark chapter 11, verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you've made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. Who does Jesus think he is? He waltzes into the temple and he proceeds to disrupt everything. He's knocking over tables. Coins are scattering all over the, the, the court floor. He's driving out people who are selling their, their sheep and their doves and their ox. The Gospel of John says that he even makes a, cord, a whip fashioned out of cords. He's got a whip and he's using the whip to take control. Who does he think he is? His behavior is, is kind of violent. This is not Jesus, meek and mild. So we've got to ask the question, why is he so angry? Well, two reasons. Hypocrisy, the sin of hypocrisy, and love. His anger is rooted in love. And so we're going we're gonna to look at each of those. First, hypocrisy. There's so much hypocrisy going on on so many different levels. Remember, this is Passover. This is one of the, the most sacred festivals for the Jews. As I said, hundreds of thousands of Jews are coming to Jerusalem, coming to the temple to remember how God set them free from captivity. They're coming to offer sacrifice. They're coming to, to worship, but they have a few challenges. They're coming from a long ways away many of them and so they're not going to bring with them their sheep they're not going to bring with them the the dove the pigeon the the ox that needs to be sacrificed so instead they bring their money and they reason when i get to jerusalem i'm going to buy an animal and i'll use that animal to offer to sacrifice but then they have a second problem the money that they're bringing is greek money or it's roman money and in the in Jerusalem, in the marketplace, in the temple in this case, the merchants are using Jewish money. So they've got the wrong money. And so when they get there, they've got to exchange their money into to Jewish money. So they've got these two challenges. I've got to buy an animal, and I've got to exchange my money into to Jewish money. It seems like a reasonable system. But as you might suspect, this necessary transaction creates this perfect opportunity for a few people to, to cash in, to just make a whole lot of money. We're happy to exchange your money for you. We'll take your, your Greek coins, your Roman coins, we'll give you Jewish coins, but we're going to charge you a hefty fee. 
to do so. And, and yeah, you need an animal, you need a sheep, we're happy to sell you a sheep. But you're going to pay a premium price for this sheep. The historian Josephus estimated that 250,000 sheep would be sacrificed. This is good old capitalism at work. The law of supply and demand. The demand is enormous. All of these people arriving in need of an animal, coming with their money. The supply is limited. And so the people at the top of this Passover pyramid are cashing in. There was nothing better than Passover to fill the coffers. Truth be told, when Jesus took a closer look at what was going on, it seemed to be more about commercial interests than it was about worship interests. It all had the appearance of worship. It looked the part, but upon closer inspection, it was absent the fruit of worship. This was simply greed and covetousness disguised as religion, all leaf no fruit. So hypocrisy has got Jesus angry. What's also got him angry is love. Look at what he said. Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for whom? For all nations. But you've made it a den of robbers. You see, it wasn't just the exploitation and the commercialization of Passover that was upsetting Jesus, what was infuriating in him was the, lo the location of where this was all happening. It's happening in the court of the Gentiles. Remember we talked about the temple was broken down into different courts? And the outside court was set apart for the Gentiles. This was where they were meant to, to worship. This was their sanctuary. All of this is taking place in the court of the Gentiles. If you were to step further in, the court of women, the court of the Israelites, the court of the priests, there everything looks very refined. There's, there's worship going on. It's very reverent. But you step out into the court of, of the Gentiles and what was meant to be a sanctuary had been turned into a stockyard. So out of love for the Gentiles who had come to worship, they had also made pilgrimage believing that they were included in this thing called the kingdom of God, Jesus becomes angry. From the very beginning, God made a covenant with Abraham. He said, I, I'm going to bless you. You're gonna, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. I'm going to bless you. And you, Abraham, and your descendants, you are to be a blessing to the nations. But over time, the Jews came to hate the Gentiles. In fact, they believed that the Messiah, the coming of the Messiah, would come with the cleansing of the temple from the Gentiles. Get him out of here. And the Messiah comes and he cleanses the temple, but he cleanses it for the Gentiles. So Jesus is angry, violent, and it's a little bit shocking. But he offers no apology. He offered no apology. He entered the the religious leader's home field, and took charge. He didn't ask for their permission, just took over. And for this, we read, the chief priests and the teachers of the law agree, agree to look for a way to kill him. Instead of hearing him and saying, you know what, maybe he's right, maybe we've, 
uh, allowed commercialization to kind of take over. Maybe greed has just gotten a little out of hand. Maybe we should move this out of the court of the Gentiles so that they too can have a place to worship. Instead of hearing his correction, they come up with a solution and their solution is let's kill him. Let's just be done with Jesus. Verse 19. When evening came, they went back out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree. We're back to the fig tree. Withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. So the cleansing of the temple is sandwiched between these, these two events with the fig tree. Mark is purposely inviting us to draw some conclusions about the temple, about what's going on in Jerusalem from the story of the fig tree. So first episode, he sees the fig tree. It looks like it should have fruit, has no fruit. He curses it. Next episode, he goes into the temple. It looks like worship is going on, but it's commercialization. And there's a lack of love. Next episode, he comes back and the fig tree is now withered. If the pattern continues, what we would expect is that the, the temple is going to wither. It's going to be destroyed. And we're going to read just in a few weeks these words, chapter 13, verse 1 and 2. The disciple is going to say, look, Jesus, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings, speaking of the temple. And Jesus will say this, do you see all of these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here on another. Everyone, every one of them will be thrown down. Jesus is extraordinarily angry. He's also extraordinary, extraordinarily loving. The temple would be destroyed, and along with it, the whole sacrificial system. No longer would people have to to make these pilgrimages, to, to buy animals and offer them as sacrifices that can really not take away their sin. The Lamb of God had arrived. He was going to be the perfect sacrifice. He was going to take away the sins of the people. Everything's changing. God's doing something amazing. I want to close with just a a little uh, picture where Jesus speaks about this. In the Gospel of John, he has an encounter with a Samaritan woman. And they're in Samaria, and they're talking about worship. And, and she says, you Jews say that we have to worship in Jerusalem. We worship here on the mountain. And listen to what he said. He said, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The hour is coming and is now here when the worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Worship in spirit and in truth. God is seeking worshipers. Worshipers who worship him in spirit and truth. God is seeking fig trees that are not just all leaf and no fruit. Join me as we pray. Lord, uh, even our worship, when we come together to, to worship you, when we worship you on, on our own, our worship falls so short. Our worship is poisoned with 
with mixed motives and, and sometimes we're just offering words without even thinking about them. Lord, for all of this, we don't want to be like the religious leaders who heard your correction and hardened their hearts. Lord, soften our hearts. Draw us back to, to yourself, to worship that is, is true, that is in spirit and in truth. And Lord, we thank you that you came and you offered yourself the perfect sacrifice once and for all so that we could be set free from our sin. We praise you, Jesus. Amen.